Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the October 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, with its guest speaker George Fleming. But before we turn it over to the Chamberlain Hotel in the heart of the East End, I'd like to make a couple of parish notices of my own for the listeners at home. The first of which is to let you know that this coming Friday, the Whitechapel Society will be auctioning off, via the online auction site eBay, a few special color limited editions of the Whitechapel Society Journal. These are sure to be collector's items and all proceeds will go to benefit the Whitechapel Mission, whose director Anthony Miller gave a memorable talk on the mission back in June, which is available to listen to as a podcast. So, look on eBay this Friday for those limited edition Whitechapel Society journals and support a wonderful organization in the Whitechapel Mission, who have been serving the needs of the area's poor and destitute for the last 140 years. Secondly, I'd like to remind our listeners of the upcoming Whitechapel Society Christmas meeting on the 2nd of December with special guest speaker, celebrity author, raconteur, ex-politician, and president of the Oscar Wilde Society, Giles Brandreth, talking about his new book, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed. And we'd like to note that Mr. Brandreth has waived all fees for the special appearance, and proceeds will go to benefit the Great Ormond Street Hospital, so we do hope that you can attend. For more information, please visit the Whitechapel Society website at whitechapelsociety.com. The October guest speaker you are about to hear is George Fleming the historical director of history at large headquartered in Salisbury, Mr. Fleming has a keen interest in true crime and ripperology and has a unique approach in organizing mock trials and retrials of famous Victorian and Edwardian criminal cases, as you are about to hear and enjoy. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Frog Moody at the Chamberlain Hotel in London, introducing George Fleming. Good evening, everybody. Oh, thank you. That's a good start. Okay, well, this is a first for me. I think it's the first time I've ever done an introductory to a speaker. And this introductory is going to be a series of firsts, I think. Um, I'll start off with just reading a bit about George Fleming, who, as you all might know, is a really, really good friend of mine. We've researched together over the years, and he's become a really, really good friend. Haven't you, George? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so George Fleming hails from Scotland, really, and he was a graduate of history at Edinburgh University. His army career in the RAEC, which stands for Royal Army Educational Corps, brought him to Salisbury in 1976, and he has stayed there ever since. Why? Inertia. <laughs> Ah, must be a nice place to live. Okay. He writes historical documentaries for live performances by his own group, History at Large, and has become particularly interested in the local history of Salisbury in the early 1900s. This is an interest he shares with Frog Moody... uh, That's me. Frog Moody, and who has worked on a number of projects relating to this period. Well, that just about scrapes the surface because our friendship obviously goes back a lot deeper than that, I have to say. Uh, I mentioned uh, a number of firsts that George and I share. Uh, It was with George that I gave my first ever public appearance talking on Titanic. Do you remember that, George? Yes. Uh 
I was absolutely petrified. My knees were bouncing together, but George took me under his wing and was fantastic. The following year, we were actually hired by Salisbury Museum to do uh, a guided walk on the subject of inns and coaching inns and coaching taverns of old Salisbury. Again, I'd never ever done anything like that before in my life. And again, George was brilliant. We had about 60 people on that walk and I was petrified. But again, George took me under his wing and we had a fantastic day, didn't we, George? Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, we worked really, really well. Um, it was also uh, in Salisbury that um, George joined our pub quiz team. Up until this point, Ruby and I were the only contenders in a team. Normally, you get four members to a team, but Ruby and I couldn't get additional members, so we hired George in to actually you know, try and help us out. And I realised then what a very, very intelligent man George is. In fact, we should have won that quiz. Uh, it was neck and neck, right down to the last question, which we lost. And George answered that question. And that question has remained with me from that day to this. And it was, I seem to remember, where do women have the curliest hair? Now, of course, the answer should have been Haiti. But do you remember what you put down, George? But I think my fondest memory of George has to be when we worked on the Haskell case. I did the research on the Haskell case. A chap called Bruce Purvis came in to write it, and George acted as the historical advisor. And I have to say, those were some of the most memorable moments of my life. We used to meet every Friday in a local pub just to swap notes and all the rest of it. George was uh, an absolute... He was fantastic to be with, you know... He likes to drink, but don't we all, you know? In fact, I think he introduced me to drinking. Another first. But no, he really is a worldly wise guy. Some of his trials, we all know here that he's done the Whitechapel Inquiry. He's done the trial with James Maybrick in Salisbury at the Whitechapel Society Conference in Salisbury. And his research is second to none. Hopefully, you guys here tonight are going to really enjoy this tonight. Uh, I've been roped in. Uh, God knows why, but I've been roped in to do this. I hope I'll give a good account of myself. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to now turn you over to George to introduce our trials. Thank you, Thank you George. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the first point I always make, uh, either here talking to the society, which I've done a couple of times, or... Uh, in Salisbury doing local history is that I am not a ripperologist or a criminologist and neither am I a local historian in Salisbury. I just happen to be someone who has written some things in both of these fields and there it is. My real métier is military and naval history and uh, the big political scene. The next two trials, two trials I'm working on which I hope will see the light of day are actually mock trials one of uh, Field Marshal Haig for the conduct, his conduct during the First World War, and the second of Neville Chamberlain uh, for the lead-up and the mistakes made in the lead-up to the second. And both of these will be serious historical analyses for and against each of those two men, with the jury, the audience, voting at the end. In the case of Haig, the charge will be unlawful killing, and the specification being that while he was bound to lose tens of thousands of men, he lost tens of thousands too many. And there is argument both ways. 
In the case of Neville Chamberlain, it is whether his uh, pusillanimity, his, his cowardice, his ineptitude, uh, it led to the Second World War, which he could have prevented. Uh, the Munich uh, surrender, all that sort of thing. And again, there's a strong case for Neville Chamberlain as well as against. Now, this is the kind of history that I am really into. But I keep, for some reason, getting involved in ripperology and the local history of Salisbury. And it has led me to what I'm talking about tonight, the use of the mock trial. Mm -hmm. And I'll illustrate this tonight, hopefully. I have my actors here, and they are going to act out with myself and others little scenelets from some of the mock trials I have done. And in each case, I will explain why those little scenelets exist and um, what I'm aiming at and uh, what the pitfalls may be and so on. So I'll proceed using them as the sort of framework on which to build my talk. It means that you'll have the merit of listening to them rather than me for most of the evening. So first of all, let me be explain ho how I see mock trials. There are two possibilities, the mock trial and the retrial. The difference being, in my simple mind, a mock trial is a trial that never took place or could never have taken place. For instance, the one I did for the society uh, two years ago, the trial of James Maybrick. Yeah? Uh, we assumed that the diary was genuine for the sake of the trial, and we tried him on the evidence of the diary and the evidence of um, the, the newspapers, the inquests, what was said and recorded at the time. That's a mock trial. I began this whole business by trying Richard III for the murder of the princes in the tower. Yeah? The trouble is, every time I do the trial of Richard III, every piece of wainscoting, every rock, every bush disgorges a swarm of Ricardians. The White Rose Society, the Richard III Society, they descend, right? There is no way I am ever going to convict that little bugger while they're in the jury. Yeah. <laughs> and since I am always the prosecutor, that's me getting it off my chest. But in fairness, they have all said how much they enjoyed them and how good the research was. So that was my first. Um, other sins have, uh, well, I've done other sins, but that, that's a good example of a mock trial. The trial that could never have taken place, and so we, we do it, but sticking as much as possible to what was actually said, what we know was said and believed at the time. And I'll illustrate this tonight with a couple of witnesses. The other is the retrial. Now that to me is more precise. That is where you take a real trial. The one Frog and I worked on was the trial of a lady called Flora Haskell in Salisbury for murdering her little boy Teddy as he slept in his bed. She cut his throat. And you're going to get a bit of that tonight. We did that. It was mainly a transcript of the trial. And I'll say more about how we differentiate between the evidence that's brought out from the trial transcript and the other evidence which comes from my fertile brain, yeah? And that, that will hopefully be illustrated tonight again. So the, the trial and the retrial. Now, when it comes to either of those, um, there are various approaches. The first trial I was ever in, oddly enough, was Richard III at Edinburgh University, the History Society. That was students, each of whom were given a character brief and told to improvise. That's a historical disaster. Student sense of humor takes over and history takes a second place, right? I, for instance, played Sir Thomas Vaughan, one of Richard's first victims after he seized power, 
and Thomas had his head cut off, so I appeared with a white sheet over me, the top painted red, and holding a turnip with a cover on it, also painted red, as the beheaded Sir Thomas Vaughan. This was the intellectual level of the evening, and I've never ever done a mock trial like that again. So that's it, the free-for-all. The second is the one that you are probably most acquainted with, and that is where you get two sets of e experts. Each gives the case. Uh, the Hanrati case has been done that way. Um, the Maybrick diary, the authenticity of the Maybrick diary, was examined that way, I believe, by the society up in Liverpool. And there, what you have is, and, oh, incidentally, I saw on YouTube a retrial of Crippen being done up in Islington. And in all cases, it was the same. You had either two experts, right, lawyers, uh, uh, criminologists, or whatever, or two teams of experts, and each of them stated the case. Uh, and then at the end, the audience voted. There's an umpire who plays the part of a judge just to see fair play. Now, curiously enough, my first reaction to that sort of thing is it's very good, very valid, valuable, but it's more like a debate than a trial because no witnesses are produced. You don't hear from any of the people who were involved in the actual trial, just from the experts. But, curiously enough, that is exactly what a trial was like in ancient Rome, yeah? When, which laid the foundations of so much European laws. Um, it was assumed that the jury, which was about 200 Romans, knew the facts of the case. They, they knew what had happened to Milo or Verres or any of the others, and when the lawyers got up, the great Cicero or the others, what they did was what we would call the summing up. Yeah? They give the argument for conviction or the argument for acquittal. And so that was a Roman trial, and it worked quite well. And it also works quite well when we have mock trials with two teams of experts or two experts summing up the evidence. But my approach, because I'm an amateur actor, is to use actors, costumed actors, some of which you see tonight. And these costumed actors will either be giving evidence from the transcript of the trial, or in the case of the Maybach trial, they will be playing the part of real people, people who actually existed, but whose words we have to work out from what they said at the time. So, different, different approaches to the mock trial. Um, and in all cases, I have to be very careful to strike a balance. I, I go for the prosecution first. I write the case and I try to get a conviction with my witnesses. Then I write the defense, and I become equally convinced about the defense, and then I have to meld the two together. And the first and greatest problem is that a criminal trial can last for weeks. Three days is quite normal, and I have to get all of that into about two hours, yeah? So editing, honest editing, is the challenge. Now at this point, let me pause. Can you all hear me all right? Obviously. Can you all understand me? I speak this funny way because I came from the Orkney Islands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, that's, uh, that's the different types of trial and the different ways of approaching it. Now, what I will do now is go straight into um, some of my actors and let you hear the sort of thing that happens. First of all, I did a thing called the Whitechapel Inquiry, which was a judicial inquiry into the Ripper murders. Yeah? Did that some years ago in Salisbury. And I repeated it with an improvised team of actors from the society in 2006. And it seemed to work quite well, yeah? It's a bit chaotic, but it did seem to go quite well. Now, one of the witnesses in that trial is Queen Victoria. Why Queen Victoria? Because the 
the belief still widely held that the royal family uh, and its physicians, Sir William Gull, were involved in the murders, that the whole thing was an attempt to cover up a massive royal scandal. Yeah? Um, so let's, without any more ado, let's hear Queen Victoria, played in this case by Sue, and um, with myself as the lawyer. Wait till I get my lawyer's jacket on. Frog has got a much better gown than mine because Sue brought it in. It's her academic gown. It's an old theatre, one from Studio Theatre. So, we call Queen Victoria, Her Majesty comes on, and on the real night, we'd be playing Crown Imperial. As Her Majesty appears. And now, I uh, ask the questions. Uh, would you please state your name and occupation? Young man, are you blind or stupid? Or just merely impertinence? A, a thousand pardons, Your Majesty. Uh, merely a legal formality, I assure you. If it please Your Majesty, it is a necessary formality, even when the name of the witness is universally known. <laughs> Very well. Then know that I am Victoria, by the grace of God, Queen of England, Scotland, Ireland, Berwick-upon-Tweed, and the dominions beyond the seas, Empress of India, and defender of the faith. Yes, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And now, if I may be so bold as to ask your majesty a few simple questions. Young man, you may ask us difficult questions if you choose. Oh, I am very much obliged, ma'am. Now, first of all, I wonder if your majesty recognizes this gentleman. That is Sir William Gull, our physician in ordinary. Uh, Sir William Gull. And, um, Sir William Gull is an eminent physician, ma'am, is he not? Of course he is. Otherwise he would not be a royal physician, and we would not have honoured him with his knighthood. Poor old gentleman. Ah, you say, poor old gentleman, ma'am. May I ask why? Because poor dear Sir William recently suffered a severe apoplectic seizure, from which I fear he has not fully recovered, and indeed may never recover. I see. An apoplectic seizure. If it please your majesty, when exactly was this? In 1887. And what have been the effects of this seizure, ma'am? Sir William has been left slightly paralysed on his right side, we are informed, and is subject to epileptic fits. Slightly paralysed and subject to epileptic fits. That is what we have just said. Are you hard of hearing, young man? Uh, no, if it please your majesty. I merely wish to implant the information firmly in the minds of the jury. Now, your majesty has described him as an old gentleman. May I ask what age he is? He is 72 years old. That is in this year, 1888. I see. If it please your ladyship, may I ask? Her ladyship being the judge. Uh, Her majesty has described Sir William Gull as an old man which at 72 he certainly was in 1888. May I also stipulate that he had recently suffered from what we would call a stroke and that he was still suffering from the after effects. And the other counsel will say, I fully endorse my learned friend's interpretation, milady. Very well, says the judge. Then the jury will please note that Sir William Gull was an old man of 72 in 1888 and that he was suffering from the after effects of a stroke. Uh, would you proceed, please? May we ask the purpose of these questions, young man? If it please your majesty, we are seeking to establish whether Sir William might have been capable of committing the Whitechapel murders, of which your majesty has doubtless heard. 
You are clearly a lunatic. The judge now chips in. Uh, Your Majesty, in fairness to learned counsel, I feel that such an allegation has been made and that he is obliged to pursue it. Very well, then you may proceed. I am most grateful to Your Majesty. Yes. Um, now, I wonder if you would be so gracious, ma'am, as to consult your journal for the 30th of September, 1888. Very well. Yes, I see, they were, I see that we were at our dear Balmoral on that day. That's in Scotland, you know. Yes. And was the Duke of Clarence also present at Balmoral? Yes, I see that His Royal Highness had lunch with us on that day. And is this His Royal Highness, Your Majesty? Of course it is. Of course it is. Everyone knows His Royal Highness. And he was at Balmoral in the middle of the day on the 30th of September, 1888. As I have clearly stated, really, young man, your questions are both tiresome and pointless. Anyone, anyone might think you were implying His Royal Highness was a suspect. Um. Well? Um, you, 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 Your Majesty, um, I fear that uh, such an allegation has been made. Uh, the I, for one, do not take it seriously. Young man, we are not amused. And she sweeps from the stage. Now, the point of that in an investigation into the Ripper was to explore this idea on which the Michael Caine film is based and at least one of the Sherlock Holmes dramas that, uh, the, that the Ripper murders were committed to cover up a massive royal scandal of some description, right? It's not really believed nowadays by any serious criminologist or ripperologist, but my problem when I write a mock trial is that I am not writing it for you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm writing it for the general public, yeah? My old mother went to her grave believing that Queen Victoria had a hand in it. She was of sort of socialistic persuasion, it was my old mum, right? And, um, and she, she couldn't be persuaded that it was highly unlikely. So what I have to do is deal with an issue the idea that it was an establishment murder plot. And I deal with that in the mock trial, first of all by getting Queen Victoria up, and it also, of course, presents a little bit of comic relief, yeah? And with a judge and two lawyers, we can really go to town on that side of it. So that is the purpose of Queen Victoria, to ex show to the general public that the, the myth of the Duke of Clarence being involved, it doesn't square with the known dates. The myth of Sir William Gull being involved uh, doesn't really square with his state of health. He was not really in condition to be shinning over fences at the back of Hanbury Street or sprinting across from Mitre Square to Goldstone Street. Um, that doesn't sound like a, a 70 odd year old man who's just had a stroke in 1888. Does that make some kind of sense? Okay? Right, so that's, that's what Queen Victoria is for. So now let's, uh, let's come to another. I've talked about uh, assuaging public belief, telling the public what the reality is, and um, that incidentally explained why uh, some of the witnesses appeared in that Ripper orgy trial. Um, uh, Rob Hinton, who wrote the crit of the one I did in Salisbury, Bob Hinton is it? Bob Hinton. He, he wrote the crit, and he was very generous. He gave me 70% of three of his knockdown points were very valid. My slides were a disaster and I shouldn't have used them. Um, the 
time it took to change witnesses, I would half agree with him on that. But one, one point, he, he didn't like my choice of witnesses, and his choice, which he said in the crit, would have been fine if I'd been doing it for this company, for the, the society, but not for the Salisbury general public. I had to include Francis Tumblety, for instance. Why? Because um, he was a strong suspect at that time, but not only that, I breeze into my local one night, and a lady I know says, what are you doing these days, George? And I said, I'm working on a mock trial of Jack the Ripper. Oh, she said, they've got him, they know who it was. And I said, what, what, what? There goes the mock trial, you see. What, well, who was it, who was it? Oh, she said, it was that yank. Yeah, um, it was on television last week. She had seen the Stuart Evans thing based on the little child letter, yeah, the little child letter that's, that puts Francis Tumblety in the frame. Now, there's, ca there's a case for and against Tumblety, or there was then, but once I found that it had been on popular television, and I saw the documentary a week or so later, a repeat of it, that had to go in, you see. I have to deal with public conceptions and, where possible, examine them. Well, examine them and, where possible, try to explode them. So that's Queen Victoria. Let's look at another witness, this time from a, a mock trial. And this time, unlike Queen Victoria, whose dialogue was entirely written by me, this next guy is going to say things which we know he said at the time. Um, the case is Jack the Ripper, and we are interrogating to see whether James Maverick did it. We have his diary, and for the purpose of the trial, we are accepting that the diary is genuine. Yeah? Does the diary provide enough evidence to convict Maverick, given his state of mind, or could he be just a, a, a rather drug-sodden fantasist? We don't know. But here is a witness who is going to be interrogated by the prosecution to establish that Maverick's diary agrees with what witnesses saw at the time, and then cross-examined by the defense to suggest that doesn't prove anything. Yeah? I call Louis Dimschutz, please. Will you please state your name and occupation, Mr. Dimschutz? I am Louis Dimschutz and I'm a market trader. And are you also the manager of a social club? Yes, sir. I'm the steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club in Bernard Street, Whitechapel. What is the International Working Men's Edu Educational Club? It's a political club for those who believe that the future of the international proletariat lies in the socialist, economic and other principles advanced by, among others, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels. Uh, these principles, if adopted universally, would have... Yes. Is this at the entrance to your club? Yes, it's, it's the gate of the yard to Mr Arthur Duffield's. Duffield's yard. It was there I found a woman's body. Oh, terrible sight it was. Yes, we'll come to that in due course. But can I just ask you, how big is Duffield's yard? Not very big. Not very big. And is it dark or well lit? Dark, sir. Just light from our club's windows. So a man could hide in it easily, yes? Oh, yes, sir. Easily. Would such a man have any other way out of the yard, apart from the alleyway we can see? Another escape route? No, sir. Not unless he went through our club. Very good. Now, Mr. Jim Shoots, do you remember the night of Saturday, the 29th of September, 1888? Remember? I should never forget such a night. Quite. Would you, would you please tell us what you experienced? I've been out all day selling my jewellery at the market in Sydney. Yes. You sell cheap jewellery, do you not? 
cheap, yes, but good value. I don't sell rubbish. I mean, these are top of the range. Normally, I retail five guineas. I don't ask for five. I don't ask for four. I don't. Yes, I'm sure. But please stick to what you saw that night in Duffield's Yard. At what time did you return? About one o'clock in the morning. And can I just establish a small pony cart, I believe? Yes, sir. And you drove it through the narrow gateway? Yes, sir. Please tell us what happened next. My horse shied suddenly to the left and refused to go forward. What caused this? It was the body of a woman. Her throat had been cut. Now, please on, hold on a moment, Mr Dimshoots. If it pleases your ladyship, may we read into the record that this was the body of Elizabeth Stride, whose throat had been cut, but who was otherwise unmutilated. She is the third victim in the indictment of James Maybrick. So, very good. No objection. Yeah. The facts of her death are not in question of the law. We are mainly interested in anything the witness saw which relates specifically to the diary. Mr Dimshoots, does this drawing illustrate your findings of the body? Uh, she was closer to the wall. Her face was towards the wall. The pony and the cart were the wrong side. She was on our right. But otherwise accurate. Mr Dimshoots, were you aware that the murderer is probably lurking in there, close to you? Not then, sir, but I found out afterwards. <laughs> yes, but no one heard him, even in that small area. Were there still people in your club? Yes, sir, but they had finished the meeting and they were singing Russian songs. Morris Eagle and I, Kotsbrotsky, were singing Russian. Oh, it loose the Cossacks of Whitechapel. Nobody should hear. I quite believe it. But now, can you tell me something about the woman? There was blood and a gash to her throat. She was wet. It had been raining. She was wearing a red flower in a dress and there were a bag of cashews in her hand. Please tell the jury, what are cashews? Uh, they're sweet-scented sweets, you, you know. They make the breath smell sweet. I'd rather like mints. Thank you, Mr. Dimshoots. Please go on. The bag had burst and some had spilled out. I see. And you say that she was wearing a red flower? Yes, sir. Red it was. Now, let me recap on your earlier statement. This frightening experience was happening to you in a small, dark yard with only one escape route. You and your horse, your horse were blocking the route and the murderer was lurking very close to you. Have I understood you correctly? Yes, sir. I have nightmares. Quite so. But now I'm going to read to you some words which have been written by the murderer. Listen carefully and I'll ask you afterwards whether this sounds likely. To my astonishment, I cannot believe I have not been caught. The horse went and shied. I find it impossible to believe he did not see me. I was less than a few feet from him. The fall panicked. It is what saved me. Yes, sir. It sounds right to me, like in my nightmares. Then let us recap two other things that you said. The dead woman was wearing a red flower. She was holding a bag, bag of cashews, yes? Yes. But I could still smell her sweet-scented breath. With a rose to match the red, do those remarks tally with what you've told us? Yes, yes, sir. In fact, you and the person who wrote those words have been telling us the same thing, have you not? about your horse, about your own reactions, and about the dead woman's possessions. Well, it sounds like it, sir. 
If you please, Your Ladyship, may the record show that the words I have been reading to the witness are the extracts from the diary of James Maybrick. I have no objection, if it please, Your Ladyship. Mm. Then the jury will please note that the scene of crime witness has been agreeing with statements made in Mr. Maybrick's diary. Uh, do you have any further questions mm. for the witness, Mr. Woody? No further questions, Your Ladyship. Then you witness, George. I am obliged to you, Ladyship. So, so, Dimschutz, played by Matt, by Matt, has just been giving the evidence that we know Dimschutz stated at the time. He was a witness at an inquest. He also spoke to the newspapers. And uh, all of what you've just heard, either we know comes from Dimschutz, although I've given him my words, and... Um, or from the Maybrick Diary, and that's quoted verbatim, with permission uh, of Robert Smith, of whom more are none. Now, I come in now as Maybrick's defence counsel, Maybrick's brief, and I'm now going to look at that same evidence again in relation to the diary. Uh, Mr. Deemschutz, am I right in thinking that you gave an interview to the Times shortly after the murder? Yes, sir. And am I also right in thinking that you were reported in other newspapers. Yes, sir. Almost. And that uh, this drawing, this drawing was printed in the popular press. It was, sir, yes. So all those words the prosecution has read to you could have been got by someone reading the papers, yes? I suppose so, sir. Even by someone who was not actually in Duckfield's yard that night, yes? I suppose so. Well, one other thing, Mr. Deemschutz. You have told us that there was light coming from your club's windows. Is that so? Yes, sir, from three, maybe four windows. And that there was singing and uh, presumably applause, etc., coming from the club. Yes, there were about 30 members listening to Morris and Isaac singing. Yes, now, we have a statement from uh, Mrs. Mortimer that she listened to the singing from out in Berner Street. Does that sound possible to you? Yes, sir. We sometimes get complaints from the neighbours about the singing. Indeed. So, we have a small yard, lights from your club, and in the club, Messrs Eagle and Kozobrodsky singing in Russian. Is it at all possible that the murderer could have been unaware of all this? I think not, sir. He could not have missed it. He could not have missed it, even if he was absorbed in his killing. Yes, but even so, sir. Now, Mr. Deemschutz, can you read fairly quickly? Well, yes, sir. Well, then I would ask you to read the paper which the court assistant is giving to you. Just read it to yourself, please. The paper is passed on, and he reads it. And this is the extract from Maybrick's diary, yeah? Describing the Duckfield Yard incident. Now then, Mr. Deemschutz, those words were allegedly written by the murderer. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Does he mention noise or lights? No, sir. Does he curse at foreigners, socialists or Jews? No, sir. But he does curse at you and your horse, does he not? Yes, sir. He damns the horse and calls me a bastard. Yes, he appears to be a hot-tempered man. Would you agree? He does, sir. So, a hot-tempered man describing a murder and a close escape, but not loud noise and activity that must have worried him, yes? If you say so, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Dimschutz. No further questions. Uh, Mr. Moody. Just one point, Mr. Dimschutz. You are something of an authority on jewellery, yes? 
Yes, sir. Something. Would you describe yourself as an authority on the behaviour of murderers, especially murderers under strain? Well, no. No, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Dimshutes. No further questions, my lady. Okay. Thank you, Frog. Thank you, Matt. Now, um, Dimshutes then, most of you will be familiar with him. He was in Dutfield's yard a few minutes after Liz Stride was murdered. Yeah? And in the Maybrick diary, James Maybrick appears at first sight to have been in Dutfield's yard as well. The horse shied, the bastard panic, all this sort of stuff, right? Um, the, the, the cashews, the sweet-scented breath. But the fact is that most of that could have been got by Maybrick from the papers in Liverpool the morning after the murder, virtually. It was a regular train service to, from Liverpool to London. The London dailies were on sale up there, and, of course, in the, in the days that followed, he could have bought anything that he was interested in, plus, of course, the fact that we know Maybrick did come to the East End from time to time. So what I have done there, and incidentally, I am not saying that Maybrick was innocent or that Maybrick was guilty, and I'm not commenting on the diary. I'm merely pointing out that given that the diary might have been real, what would Maybrick's brief have done? What would a lawyer do with that evidence? If the diary is Maybrick's, does it prove that he committed the crime? Bearing in mind that it's got to be proved without doubt, and if his defence keeps casting doubt, 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 then Maybrick walks free, yeah? And this is what I'm trying to get through here. So that, that bit, um, this piece was written, of course, for the society. So my working assumption all the way through was I was talking to an audience that knew all about the Ripper murders and Deem Schutz and Liz Stride. Um, and at this point, let me just say a word of thank you to Robert Smith. When he heard that um, we were doing this, he was a bit... Uh, nonplussed at first. I think he made the mistake of getting bladdered with Frog one night up at the society and he misunderstood what we were doing and I think he thought it was going to be an attack on the diary. Yeah. So I wrote Robert a, a letter and pointed out that I was accepting the diary as genuine for the purpose of the trial and it was an investigation into whether Maybrick did it on the evidence of the diary. And I included a couple of scenes from the trial and I got the most lovely letter back from Robert Smith, a marvellously friendly and encouraging letter saying it looked great and go ahead. So I did the performance with his permission and he was present in Salisbury at the actual show. And again, he said very nice things afterwards. I sent him a script and he wrote back a nice letter. So I am very pro-Robert Smith. He, he was very supportive of that particular thing that, that I did for the society and also for my own writing. So that, that's Deem Shoots. Now, have I lost anyone yet, or are we still on the ball? What is the time, please, someone? Quarter past eight. Then I think, suggest we have one more witness, and then take a break. Does that meet with your approval? Short break, and then there'll be two witnesses after that, one of which is very short, and the other of which is uh, rather longer. But so far, what I've done is to illustrate the, the, a witness to disabuse the public of a, a very simple idea that the royal family was involved in the Ripper murders. And the second witness was to an, an educated audience, educated in the sense of knowing about the Ripper murders and exploring this issue of what exactly does the diary say, what do the witnesses say, and what would a lawyer make of it. So two different types of audience, two different approaches. Now this next witness was in a murder trial in Salisbury in 1909, a little boy called Teddy Haskell 
had his throat cut while he was sleeping, right? And you'll hear about the wound in a minute. Um, he died, and his mother, the, the great inspector Jew, was sent down from Scotland Yard to help the local clodhoppers with the investigation. And um, he rather steered the prosecution in the direction of the little boy's mother, Flora Haskell. Now, Flora was put on trial, and the first trial collapsed. The jury simply couldn't agree. The second trial acquitted her, with the rider acquitted for lack of sufficient evidence. Flora was lucky. The prosecutor was James Alderson Foote, a very good, competent barrister, King's Counsel, but not a, a great star. Defending her was a guy called Rainer Goddard. Now, Rainer Goddard went on to become the Lord Chief Justice of England in the 1940s and 50s, and he had a reputation by then of being something of a hanging judge. It was, Rainer, it was Goddard, for instance, who sent Derek Bentley to, to his death. Um, but he, he was coming down hard on murders because there was a dreadful fear that in the years following the war uh, there would be a, an outbreak of murder and violent crime by men who'd been taught how to kill during the war. It was misplaced, but that, that was the reason. But Reynard Goddard was a brilliant barrister, and he got the job of defending Flora at the Assizes. Mm -hmm. And Goddard went out to do two things. He, first of all, established, he, whenever any witness appeared who had known Flora Haskell, and they were all prosecution witnesses, he got them to say she was a wonderful mother, and it was inconceivable that she could have murdered the little boy. And when expert witnesses appeared, he cast doubt. Yeah? But this next witness is quite interesting because he introduces something that, that I bring into mock trials. Dr. Herbert Wilkes. He was the family doctor to the Haskell family, and he was the first medical man on the scene of the murder. And he gave evidence at the trial as to what the wound had been like, what it had done, how the little boy had died, but Goddard got him to say that as the family doctor, he found it inconceivable that Flora had murdered the boy. However, the other thing was that he was also got by Goddard, by the defense, to say that the wound, right, was more consistent with the strength of a man than the strength of a woman. It went in there, cut the little boy's windpipe and larynx, cut the right carotid artery, this was a kitchen knife that had only been sharpened on a stone by the little boy himself, and yet it inflicted that deep, sudden, two-and-a-half-inch deadly wound. And Wilkes was got to testify that the, the, that was more consistent with the strength of a man than a woman. Yeah? Now comes a, a gimmick of mine, the commentator or the interlocutor. I am dressed in my, sorry, dressed in my interlocutor's costume just now. All the other actors and the lawyers and the judge are all in 1909 costumes. Yep, borrowed from the Logby Theatre group. But I am dressed like this, and my counterpart, a female interlocutor, is also dressed in black. Lindsay's playing the part tonight, and as you'll see, she's dressed in black. We are there to ask questions which were not asked at the time. Now, why? A wound more consistent with the strength of a man than a woman. That told with the jury, because the jury were all men, all male in 1909, and they were all middle class, right? So they were all prone to believing in the weaker sex. 
Flora was a small woman. She was not much over five feet tall and very slightly built. So the male jury sat there, these solid Wiltshire men all sat there, and they swallowed this. Uh-huh. And now we're going to examine it with the interlocutors. And the, the audience, jury, knows from the program, and they know because I've told them this viva voce at the very beginning, that when I speak, or Lindsay speaks, that was not said at the time. That's me introducing a slant that a modern jury would want to hear. So that, that's the way. Now let's see how it goes. The, Dr. Wilkes, please, played by our good friend, Bill. Dr. Wilkes has just given the evidence I've told you about, and he's about to sit down when I interject and say, I think I should like to intervene here. Uh, yes, likewise. Indeed. So at this point, the court freezes, right? So the attention is on us three. Now then, Dr. Wilkes, let me see if I've understood you correctly, right? I am for the defense. I am going for the defense. I have understood you to tell the court, in effect, that Flora Haskell is the very last person you would expect to murder Teddy. Uh, have you not said that? And this bears out the repeated evidence of other witnesses that she was a very devoted mother and that they were very close. Yes? It told the court, in effect, that Flora Haskell is the very last person you would expect to murder Teddy. Have you not? Yes, you are correct. And this bears out the repeated evidence of other witnesses that she was a very devoted mother and that they were very close, yes? I suppose it does, yes. And have you also stated at various times that the blow which killed Teddy, I quote, required considerable force? I have so stated, yes. You have stated that, quote, the force required was more consistent with a man's strength than a woman's, yes? Yes. As her long family, standing family doctor, would you describe Mrs. Haskell as a powerfully built woman? No. She is very slightly built and not much over five feet tall. So, slightly built, not much over five feet tall. Psychologically and physically, she doesn't seem to fit your first impression of Teddy's murderer. Is that a fair statement? Is that fair to say? My first impression, yes. Very well. Then can we now look at the fatal wound? <coughs> it was about two and a half inches long, yes? That is correct. Two and a half inches. That is just this length, uh-huh, and running from here to here, about halfway around the neck, correct? That is correct, yes. And yet it could not have done a better job of killing, could it? No. As I've stated, it severed the windpipe, the larynx, and the left carotid artery, all within a second or so. Teddy was unable to cry out. He was unconscious almost instantly and dead within a second, yes? Yes. Now, Dr. Wilkes, are you familiar with another Wiltshire child murder of the little boy Savile Kent in 1862? It was before my time, rather, but yes, I have read of the case. You've read of it. Now, I understand that that little boy's throat was cut right across and so deep that his head almost fell off when they lifted his body. Am I right? Uh, I have read that, yes. And you will certainly be familiar with the murder of the little girl Jeffreys here in Salisbury. Uh, years after Teddy Haskell, a few years, yes? I was not involved in that case, but of course I am familiar with it. It was an act of insanity by her father, correct? Yes, he was committed to a lunatic asylum. Quite so. But once again, the child's throat was cut right across, was it not? Yes, it was. And from your knowledge of the world, is this not a normal practice in throat cutting, mm. with suicides, with murders, sane or insane? In fact, uh, do we not have a recurring expression in English 
the throat was cut from ear to ear. Yes, I would agree with that. You would agree with that, yes? Normal expression. And yet poor Teddy was killed by a short two and a half inch cut, which did the business instantly with maximum efficiency, with minimum fuss, and all this in a not very well lit room, yes? Yes. So we might be justified, might we not, in asking whether a very ordinary woman like Flora Haskell could, could possess this lethal efficiency. I suppose we might. Thank you, Dr. Wilkes. No more questions. Uh, not just yet, Doctor. I'd like to reclaim and return briefly to my colleague's line of inquiry, if that's okay. Doctor, my colleague has reminded us of your evidence that Flora Haskell seemed a very unlikely suspect to you. But now let me put it to you that a good and devoted woman can become insane, can she not? Yes, of course. She could, for example, be worn down by prolonged stress, could she not? Yes, she could. And this stress could all come to a head in a sudden act of madness, could it not? Yes, that sort of thing has been known to happen. And you will confirm that Flora's life has had more than its share of stress, will you not? Yes, it has. So a sudden act of insanity or a deliberate act brought about by accumulating hopelessness, both of these are possible contingencies, are they not? I suppose they are, yes. Thank you. Now, the second thing you recalled from my colleague was that you thought the force of the blow was not consistent with the strength of a woman, yes? Yes. Yes, but what is Mrs. Haskell's job, Doctor? She is a laundress. She takes in washing. Yes, she is. She's a laundress. She uses long wooden paddles to stir and knead large, item, large items like sheets in a copper of boiling water. Heavy work. I dare say. Then she lifts them out and puts them through a mangle. Heavy work? Yes. To cut a long story short, she uses her forearms and wrists to wring items out, to scrub them on a washing board, to carry them outside and hang up, etc., etc. All heavy work for hands, wrists, forearms, shoulders, yes? Yes, it would be. So is it not conceivable that Flora Haskell's arms would be strong enough to inflict the wound that killed Teddy? I suppose it might be, yes. And now something else. My colleague referred you to the dreadful wound inflicted on young Savile Kent, did he not? He did. And in that case, the prime suspects initially were all men, were they not? So I believe. But he was actually killed by his half-sister, am I right? Yes, Miss Constant Kent. And she was a 16-year-old schoolgirl, was she not? Yes, that is so. Then if we've scotched the myth of the weaker sex... Let's look at the third issue. I understood my colleague to imply that Teddy's wound looked as though it might have been inflicted deliberately by an expert. Was that your understanding? Yes, I think that was what he was suggesting. Well, then let me offer you another scenario. The killer is a devoted mother. What she's going to do to her child is horrific. She doesn't want to do it. Her mind is in turmoil. She can't do it, but she's got to do it. So she's not deliberate. It's a sudden, wild stabbing cut at the nearest bick of the child's neck, stabs fiercely down and waits for any hubbub to subside. Might not that scenario explain Teddy's wound, Doctor? Yes, I suppose it might. Thank you, Doctor. No further questions. So, Dr Wilkes then, the point of the interlocutors I think you've just seen. The male jury in 1909 had probably never washed anything bigger than a pair of socks in their lives. The idea of a, that a small woman like Flora Haskell might be capable of going best of three falls with Hulk Hogan, yeah? 
would never have occurred to them. And the, the interlocutors raised that point, especially as Flora was sitting in the dock in the Salisbury Old Courtroom where we held this. And she was played by uh, Carol Harding, the landlady of my local pub. And Carol was perfect for the part. She's a small lady, slightly smaller than me, quite slightly built, and she had a black dress and a little hat, and she sat there, and like Flora, she didn't say anything throughout the whole trial except to dab her eyes now and then at some of the grisly evidence, right? So, obviously, the, the jury in 1909 would have taken one look at her and thought, yeah, you know, of course she couldn't have done that. And Lindsay has just brought out the fact that a washerwoman had immensely strong arms and shoulders. The other thing I didn't tell you was that Teddy Haskell, the little boy, had only one leg. His right leg had been amputated twice, the second time right up near the hip, where he had tuberculosis of the joint. And that hadn't gone away. He still had it in the joint. Flora had to lance the wound every so often to make it discharge the, the, the pus and gunk which grew up inside it. She was a woman under stress. Her husband had died of consumption, tuberculosis in the lungs, a few years earlier. So what was going to happen to Teddy when Flora died? This woman was under stress, right? And had been under stress for a long time. Was it a mercy killing on the spur of the moment? We don't know. And that's what the jury had to decide. But one thing that is sure is that Flora Haskell had the strength to do it if she had the desperation. And if she had the desperation, that might account for this violent, violent thrust with a not very good knife down and across through two of the toughest big tubes in the human system. So this is, uh, again, the use of the interlocutors to bring out evidence that is modern. Am I still making sense here? Yep. And this was a trial, of course, which the people of Salisbury hadn't heard. It came as a, as a thunderclap to them that this murder had actually happened. Uh, Frog and I are hoping to repeat it uh, next year. Frog and I wrote a book about it called If I Did It, I Can't Remember. You'll see the origins of that quote after the interval. If I Did It, I Can't Remember. Very good book, and I strongly recommend it to you. If you can get hold of a copy of it, it's in great demand. Um, uh, and there it is. Now, what I suggest we do now is take an interval, take a short break, 15 minutes, comfort break, recharge, yeah, and then afterwards, oh, how many, how many, Steve, what do you think? 10, 15 minutes. There are two more witnesses, one of which is very short, and the other is longer, but we, we should be finished without, before midnight, yeah? <laughs> okay, thank you. I don't know whether Flora Haskell did it or not. Uh, Frog and Ruby and I can never meet in a pub without falling into an argument about it. Uh, I really don't know, but I, I, I try to place both sides of the argument. One has to have a sense of ethics in this business. So now, let's come to another thing. While Flora was in custody, she said something which the prosecution thought might put the nail in her coffin. Yeah? This is the bit from... This is the bit from the, the script of the trial, and then we'll get um, uh, Catherine to act out. In the trial, I am the interlocutor, right, at this point, and I step forward and I say, now, we're very near the end of the trial. We've heard all the witnesses, the local witnesses, the police, the medical. We've had Dr. Pepper, who, the forensic scientist from uh, the Home Office, he examined Flora's clothing and uh, other things, and um, he appeared from the Home Office as a witness, and we had uh, Inspector Jew from Scotland Yard, the great Inspector Jew, I caught Crippen, Jew, and all of this, 
But now at the very end of the trial, a witness is produced and she's right out of place. This is what I say. Now something quite interesting happens. We are almost at the end of the 1909 court proceedings when the prosecution fields its last witness. The jury have heard in distinct groups from people who were in or near number 40 Meadow Road that night, from the police officers who investigated and from the medical men. This next witness and last witness should really have been part of the police evidence. But Foote, who is the prosecuting counsel, Foote is putting her on last and separately. And there is a reason, a tactical reason. Call Matilda Shepherd, please. And I think you lead in this, problem. No, I lead in this, sorry, I'm Foote, yep. Well, would you please state your name? My name is Matilda Shepherd. And what is your occupation, Mrs. Shepherd? I am the police matron and in Salisbury. You are the police matron in Salisbury. And have you been involved with Mrs. Haskell in that capacity? Yes, sir. While she was being held in Salisbury. I see, while she was in Salisbury. On December the 5th, were you with the prisoner in a room adjoining the cells? Yes, sir. Did she say something to you on that occasion? Yes, sir. After the reverend gentleman, Mr. Thwaites, left, she said to me, Oh, Mrs. Shepherd, if I did it, I don't remember it. She said, Oh, Mrs. Shepherd, if I did it, I don't remember it. Did you make any reply? No, sir. Good. Now, I would now be the commentator. That job would have been done by one of the two actors playing prosecutor, right? You see, I say, as interlocutor, during this appearance, Matilda Shepherd also gave routine police evidence about taking charge of Flora Haskell's clothing. But it's that last bit, if I did it, I don't remember, that Foote wants the jury to hear, right at the end. Because it's the very first time Flora Haskell has wavered. And that's the impression he wants to leave with them, if Goddard lets him. So now Frog appears as Renard Goddard, the brilliant defence counsel. Now, Mrs Shepherd, this conversation happened late in the evening, yes? Yes, sir. And it was the evening of the day Mrs Haskell had been committed for trial, did it not? Yes, sir. How long had the magistrate's hearing lasted? For a week, sir, from Monday to Saturday. Mrs Haskell had been facing the magistrates every day for a week? Yes, sir. And had she been calm throughout? No, sir. She had several hysterical breakdowns. Including one that very day, am I right? Yes, sir. As a result of which, the magistrate had to adjourn the hearing till she recovered, yes? Yes, sir, for about half an hour. And did she require the attendance of a doctor that very morning? Yes, sir, she did. Because she had become hysterical again? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mrs. Shepherd. No further questions. Now that, was, that was Goddard. He demolished Foote's clever piece of tactics by the simple expedient of drawing out, and this, this, is, this is actually from the transcript. These are the words the two lawyers actually used. He destroyed the thing completely by just getting the woman to agree that Flora Haskell was hysterical. She'd been hysterical all that day. She'd collapsed and needed medical attention. The poor woman was in a dreadful state, whether she was guilty or not. 
she was in bits. And so when she finally said, oh, oh, Mrs. Shepard, if I did it, I can't remember. I mean, what Mrs. Shepard couldn't give you and what, what the prosecution didn't bring out and Goddard didn't bother was how did she say it? Because Mrs. Shepard would have to be a bit of an actress to tell her. But she'd, what I'm reasonably sure of is that she didn't just say, oh, Mrs. Shepard, if I did it, I can't remember. Uh, the woman was hysterical. And that utterly destroyed anything she said is simply not evidence that any jury would, would entertain for a minute, you see? So that was a piece of the transcript of the trial which worked without the need. All the commentators had to do, or the interlocutors, was to point out that she came on last and suggest why she came on last and then let Goddard and Foote have their say. So this is what we did there. Now, the last witness then, and this again comes down to uh, interlocutor work. I'm working on the, the retrial of Dr. Crippen. Yeah? And um, it will be based, it's, it's a, a, a fairly hefty work. I mean, the medical evidence alone drags on and on and on. And long before any modern evidence appeared, there was doubt as to whether Crippen was actually guilty or not. But the main central thing in the case against Crippen was that they found buried under the cellar of his house some human remains. Um, the lower part of a body which had been filleted. There were no bones, uh, uh, no skull, uh, nothing that would remotely aid identity, yeah? except for a, a, a scar that suggested a, 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 a hysterectomy, uh, right, and, and that uh, Cora Crippen, Crippen's wife, was known to have had. Now, we're not interested in the scar at this point, but this mess that was found, it, it really was horrific, uh, what the police had to dig out, a mass of human flesh just flopping in there, buried, wrapped loosely in a pair of pyjamas, and um, badly, badly decomposed. But they got it out, and then the... Doctors had a field day. The great Dr. Spilsbury, whose reputation then was rising, he testified that this was consistent with the remains of Cora Crippen, Crippen's wife. And um, the evidence that it was often said hang Crippen was a piece of tissue that had what appeared to be a scar on it, consistent with this, um, I think it was a hysterectomy she had, yeah? Sorry? An overoctomy, an overoctomy she'd had, and it was consistent with that. But at the time, the defense tried to say, no, that could have been just because the flesh was lying folded, compressed with soil on top of it and paving stones, um, but it, it was generally held to be the piece of evidence that hanged Crippen. I'm personally not so sure. There was other evidence as well, other stuff that produced it. Crippen, I think, would have found it hard to explain. But he did maintain his innocence, yeah, and... Um, he went to the gallows protesting his innocence. Now, let us look at what's happening now. Recently, one of Crippen's collateral descendants, a Mr. Michael Crippen in America, has opened what I have referred to as a Crippen was innocent campaign. Yeah? To get Crippen given a posthumous pardon and his body disinterred and taken to America and buried over there in a family grave. Crippen, of course, was an American. Yeah? Um, how this will work, we don't know, but in the course of this campaign, uh, Michael Crippen has engaged the services of a very good scientist from the Michigan State University. And this guy has come up with um, startling evidence. He's looked at the DNA of one little piece of tissue from this body. It's one little bit of tissue in a microscopic slide, right? 
that was, that was held and used at the trial. And from this he has deduced, one, the DNA of that flesh isn't Crippen's wife. He's found collateral descendants of Crippen's wife, ladies living in America, and tested their DNA, and he says it's not the DNA that's on the slide. The second thing, even more astonishing, is that he has come to the conclusion that the DNA is actually male DNA, and that this mess that was found in the cellar were the remains of a man and not a woman. Now that possibility was actually raised at Crippen's trial. Right? Is this the remains of Cora Crippen, or is it the remains of someone else? And the judge actually directed the jury, if this, if this is not the remains of Cora Crippen, then Crippen is not guilty and has to walk free. It's not the business of this court to try him for a set of unknown remains. If Crippen had walked free, of course, the, the crushers would have felt his collar the minute he got outside the courtroom to say, well, all right, if it's not Cora's body that's in your cellar, whose is it? Yeah? So he was in a sticky wicket. At all events, let's look at what happens now. now in this instance, I want to bring up in the Crippen trial the scientific American the scientific evidence from the American scientist Dr. Ferrant and the Michigan State University. I have a problem. I am portraying, if I don't watch, I'm portraying a living person. So unless I can find an actor who looks like Dr. Ferrant uh, uh, and talks like him, um, I'm not going to get him right. Frog wouldn't do the job, neither would Bill, right? And I certainly wouldn't. It would have to be the right sort of man. And I'd have to be very, very careful that by nothing he did, not by his inflection, not by his attitude, not by the way he gave his evidence, that I committed slander or libel against the American scientist. So I have to be careful. And the method I'm using here is using the interlocutors and producing a scientist, in this case played by Ruby. Yeah? And this scientist will give evidence as to what doctor the American people have found out. She's a defense witness. She's brought on by Crippen's, by the defense to try and prove Crippen is innocent. So by the time I get on to her, right, as the prosecution interlocutor, she has gone through the DNA evidence and she has uh, labored through chromosomes and genomes and metronomes and God knows what else, garden gnomes, and she has proved to everyone's satisfaction that uh, the body in the cellar was not descended, was not Crippen's wife, and in fact it was the body of a man. Right? To the defense's satisfaction. Now, I have got to try and deflate that for the prosecution. But I'm also trying to make two points here. I'm an educator, and when I do these things, as I did with um, Queen Victoria, as I did with, uh, with other cases, I'm also trying to show the general public how to approach crimes and unsolved crimes. Because I've encountered two things. One is that DNA is the golden bullet. The minute DNA is mentioned, that's it, problem solved. I've even heard it argued quite regularly in my local and other places that now we can bring back the death penalty. Because the great objection, one great objection, has always been that innocent people were hanged. Yep. But now that we've got DNA, we know that anyone we hang must be guilty. They actually believe this. This is widely held in the general public. You'll even see it in some of the, the press from time to time. So... First of all, I want to educate the public a little bit about DNA. The second thing is scientists. The minute a guy in a white coat appears and says, we've discovered this, we've discovered that, problem solved. 
I now want to cast a little bit of critical doubt on scientists. Yeah? So these are my, if you like, public educational aims in this next bit of evidence. Uh, and also, just to sort of put the Crippen case into balance. Right, let's see. Let's have Ruby up then as a forensic scientist. Uh, Dr. Vitorino, a counsel for the defense has established that you are a forensic scientist and that you have taken a particular interest in the Crippen case. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, you have. And for the purposes of this trial, you have presented the DNA evidence asserted by some reputable scientists, American scientists, on Dr. Crippen's behalf. Yes? I have, yes. The scientists in question being, consults notes, uh, Dr. John Trestrail, Dr. David Foran, and behind them the full research facility of the State University of Michigan. Am I still on the right track? You are. And can I sum up the DNA evidence in question? A small piece of human tissue from the body unearthed in Dr. Crippen's cellar has been in the possession of the Royal London Hospital. The American scientists have tested this DNA uh, again, DNA against DNA samples obtained from some of Cora Crippen's collateral descendants. Am I right so far? Yes. Good. And they have proved to the defense's satisfaction that the body in the cellar was not that of Cora. Uh, they have further proved that the sample of tissue was actually from a male body. Have I understood all of that correctly? You have indeed. But um, may I emphasize one point? Please do. Uh, it isn't just a small piece of human tissue. It's a piece with the alleged scar from Cora Crippen's operation. It was the key prosecution evidence that the body in Crippen's cellar was that of his wife. It could be said that it was the evidence that hanged him. Yes, I have no difficulty with that. In fact, the last thing we wish to do is to trivialize this piece of evidence. But now let me try to assess the value of this new DNA investigation. First of all, can you tell the jury when the existence of DNA was first established? 1953, Watson and Crick. In 1953 by Watson and Crick. And when was the tissue sample entrusted to the Royal London Hospital? Um, I can't give an exact date. Uh, it was part of Sir Bernard Spilsbury's archives. I don't know when it passed to the Royal London. Indeed. But we do know that Sir Bernard died in 1947, did he not? I believe so, yes. So we can safely say that between them, Sir Bernard and then the hospital stored this sample for 43 years. 43 years without being aware that it might hold hidden DNA evidence. Yes? Yes, uh, obviously. Well, obviously. And as a forensic scientist, can you tell the jury when DNA evidence was first recognized in British and American courts? Uh, please feel free to consult any notes you may have. Uh, in America first, the case of Andrews versus the state of Florida in 1987. Um, then in England, the Crown versus Colin Pitchfork, 1988. Yes, 1987 and 1988. 
And am I correct in thinking that both British and American legal professions then expressed serious reservations about the use of DNA evidence, especially in relation to the history of that evidence prior to, its, to the trial? Oh, yes. Um, there were serious issues to be resolved involving sources, contamination, deterioration. And as, are these still likely to be serious issues when DNA evidence is offered? Oh, yes, of course. Then let us return to our Crippen sample. It was stored in at least two archives from about 1910 to 1987, yes? I believe so, yes. That is some 78 years. And during those 78 years, no one could possibly be aware that it contained sensitive DNA evidence, correct? Of course. Evidence which for legal admissibility had to be scientifically protected, yes? Yes. Right. Yes. So that's 78 years for possible degradation or contamination to have occurred. Have I got that right? Yes, but it wasn't just stowed in a drawer or a shoebox. It was properly stored with other preserved tissue samples. But storage for 78 years? Yes, but the actual tissue was enclosed in a microscope slide, so it was protected from outside contamination. A microscope slide. That was, of course, a microscope slide of 1910 vintage, not a modern protective container. Yes? Yes, of course. Then can we look back to 1910? During the investigation and trial, this and other samples of tissue were passed from numerous hands to numerous other hands. Am I correct there? Yes. And these would all have been male hands, yes? In those days, yes. Yes. Then let me read you a contemporary account of how it was done. Uh, reading. The slab of flesh was exhibited in court. It was lying in a large dish, soused with some preservative. Now, was that an acceptable way to handle DNA evidence? No, of course not. How, how could they possibly have known? Yes, yes. Let me clarify. I am not talking about carelessness, merely about an unavoidable lack of knowledge. But wouldn't it have further weakened the DNA evidence sufficiently to challenge Dr. Foran's accuracy a century later? Well, the prosecution would challenge it on those grounds, yes, but it's still strong evidence. Right, then let's look at another aspect of this new evidence. These American scientists are both considered leaders in their field, yes? Yes, absolutely. As is the State University of Michigan, am I correct there? You are, yes. And when Dr. Foran and Michigan State University lend their reputations to a case, they are going to be listened to with great respect, yes? I should hope so, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, I have no wish to disparage Dr. Foran or the university, but I must put it to you that they have both become associated with what I might call the Crippen was innocent campaign, yes? I'm afraid I don't follow you. Then let me elaborate. A Mr. James Patrick Crippen, collateral descendant of Dr. Crippen, is campaigning to have the doctor declared innocent and given a posthumous royal pardon. His remains can then be taken back to America and buried in the family grave. Now, Dr. Foran has appeared in television documentaries with Patrick Crippen supporting the case with his new DNA evidence. Are you aware of all this? Yes, but I hope you're not accusing Dr. Foran of, of falsifying evidence 
His integrity as a scientist is beyond question. And I do not question that for a moment. But now let me show you something. Cigarette packet. This cigarette packet contains an obtrusive government health warning. Smoking is now banned in all public spaces. It is accepted even by the tobacco industry that smoking is a danger to health. Am I correct? Of course you are. But I don't see what you were driving at. Then bear with me. Do you remember the numerous inquiries held in Britain and the USA into this very matter, tobacco and public health? Yes, and I do. Then do you also remember that scientists and medical men of undoubted reputation, undoubted integrity, were prepared to go into the witness box again and again and declare that there were no health risks or that they were not significant? Now, were they a bunch of lying charlatans? No! They were raising legitimate doubts based on scientific analysis against some of the evidence being quoted by other scientists. In fact, they were rather like lawyers, honestly making the best case possible under their brief, yes? You could put it that way, I suppose. But their evidence was flawed, was it not? In that case, yes, but that's not to discredit scientific evidence generally, like... Dr. Ferrand's in the Crippin case. No, indeed not. But I want to put it to you that scientists do sometimes find what their brief wants them to find. And they leave it up to the other side scientists to come up with any contradictions. Is that not so? Yes? Possibly. But I don't think Dr. Ferrand's research ignored possible flaws and contradictions. Uh, then we must hope that he gave them new emphasis. Uh, thank you, Dr. Vitorino. No further questions. Now, <laughs> I hope I'm not going to have a gaggle of New York lawyers beating down my door when I go home tonight. But I think, you see, I've, I've tried to bear in mind that before that piece of evidence occurs, uh, the, the scientists, Ruby or whoever plays the part, well, have been giving all the evidence in favour of Dr. Ferran and the University of Michigan. That will be presented honestly, right? And it has been sufficiently strong to persuade quite a few people that Crippen was innocent. The cry has gone up that Scotland Yard should now make other forensic evidence available to be DNA tested. Uh, the problem, of course, ignores the fact that this can only be done by expending large sums of public money. Yeah? And if you do that for every case of suspected innocence in history, um, we're all going to have to find another two or three quid a, a week out of our income tax. So uh, there is the problem. Now, that concludes the witnesses. Let me just conclude tonight. Yeah, I said we'd be finished by half nine, and we're going to be. Let me just read you from... This is the programme for the Whitechapel inquiry that I did in Salisbury, and the one which I repeated up here. And I think that what I've said in this um, really puts the case quite succinctly, right? Um, tonight we are employing the format of a judicial inquiry to explore the notorious Jack the Ripper story. We hope that by proceeding like a trial through question and answer, we will be able to pass on a substantial body of fact which might be too much for a lecture and would certainly be skimped in a play. At the end of the evening, we will ask you to vote on which of our suspects, if any, you would consider sending for trial on the available body of evidence. The voting system has been kept simple. You simply have to drop the green counter you've been given 
into the appropriate clearly marked pot. Two big flower pots, one red, one green. One marked guilty, one marked innocent. And what we do nowadays, we use some poker chips that I've been given. In those days, we used tuppenny pieces painted green. Yep. And that means we get a verdict inside five minutes. No bits of paper, no counting up. Nice and easy. Our small number of suspects, and this is quite important, was chosen from an astronomically large list. By raising the subject of this show in various licensed premises and listening to views like, weren't the royal family involved? Oh, it was an American. Did you see the programme on Channel 4? Well, I thought they'd found him. Hasn't his diary been found, etc., etc., etc.? So profound apologies to any devout ripperologists whose favourite suspect has been admitted. I hope you find this evening as serious as its grim subject deserves, though enlightened by flashes of humour. Yeah? And that, I think, sums it up. Um, I do try to apply a certain integrity here, uh, ethics. In the case of Dr. Farran, the American scientist, for instance, I'm not interested in trying to trash his reputation. But I am interested in making the public think about DNA and think about scientists as, as witnesses. After all, in the Crippen trial, uh, they were up to their necks in scientists, in medical men, Spilsbury, Pepper, he was there, and others, saying contradictory things, yeah, following their briefs. So that's the first thing. Now, I think I've said enough at this point, not to keep you here all, all night. So I'll stop now. Would anyone like to ask any questions? Yes. Th there were interesting things here. Flora said, Flora raised the specter of a, a mystery man who'd come bounding down the stairs just at about the time when the little boy was being murdered. Her lawyer, Goddard, ignored all of that. There was a man who, walking past, saw, saw a, ma a man coming out of that house at about the time of the murder, followed by a weeping woman who followed them down the street for a few doors. And that could have been Flora. The problem with that evidence is that Flora denied that she had left, that, that that happened. Now, you can hardly put a witness up, a mystery man up, if your client, the, the, the suspect, uh, denies his existence. So there were some. Ruby has been doing some research into a man who went missing in Salisbury that very night, that very day, a man called Ray, a violent man whose wife flung about the house for domestic abuse. Now, Ray went missing, and um, he, he, he could be involved in this. I know Ruby thinks he was. Now, Goddard went into that. Flora's solicitor actually called Goddard's attention to Ray and the fact that he had disappeared. So what was Goddard up to? Goddard was doing something that lay people often find hard to, to get round. He was homing in on the two things he could do in front of the jury. One, he could get so many people to say what a wonderful mother Flora was. And he got all the prosecution's local witnesses to say that. And the second thing is, in the scientific evidence, he could cast doubt. When the great Dr. Pepper testified that some drops of blood on Flora's blouse could not have got there in the way she said they did, by this mystery man flinging a knife at her, which had hit her and fallen to the floor, um, Goddard was able to get him to agree that as regards blood, all he could tell was that it was the blood of a mammal in 1908, you say 1909. It, 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 it could have been blood from cutting up ham or cutting up meat 
for their meals. It could have been anything. But Dr. Pepper, when put on the spot, when Dr. Goddard said to him, now you have said that those spots on her blouse could only have got there in, 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 by a spray coming from the little boy's lungs. Are you prepared to state now that no other explanation is possible? And Pepper backed off. Pepper was under oath, and he was a man of integrity. And he said, no. You know, in other words, he had to admit that he couldn't be 100% sure of his evidence. So what Goddard did, he honed in on those two things, casting doubt on the police witnesses and getting the local police witnesses to say what a wonderful woman Flora was. He ignored mystery men, yeah, because the evidence for their existence was flimsy and it was contradictory. The fact that Ray's a violent man and goes missing doesn't prove that he did it. Yep. Uh, the fact that another man saw this fellow coming out of the, the door of the house, followed by a woman, that founders because Flora has denied it and made a statement to that effect. Uh, and so um, all these, these uh, possible other contingencies, uh, robbery is dismissed fairly early in the game because the amount of money stolen wouldn't have justified committing murder. Yep. So the answer is yes. Other possibilities existed. The lawyers, neither of the lawyers, prosecution or defence, thought they were sufficiently strong to be well. Yep. Anyone else? Question? Yes. Okay, yeah. uh, hang on a second, I'll come around with the microphone. Is a current, recurrent urban myth that Crippin's remains were actually sent to Dublin and buried in mistake for Sir Roger Casement? So if they do sort out a pile, they better check his DNA as well. <laughs> yes, I didn't know that myth. I know that when they, when they disinterred uh, Casement, um, they found, I'm trying to think of it now, they found there was a toe bone in, in a, an embarrassing part of his anatomy. Yeah? <laughs> they didn't, didn't fuss too much about how they buried these guys. Um, so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if something odd like that happened, a mistake. So Crippen, it is rather amusing. He's buried with full military honours in Ireland, yeah. And that will cause a certain amount of embarrassment. I hadn't heard that. Thanks for enlightening me, yeah. Any other questions? I think you have one. Do you think that Flora murdered the little boy? Now, this is something where I have to put my hand on my heart and say I don't know. Yeah? I've um, looked at the, the prosecution evidence and uh, in writing the trial I, I give it full weight. Um, who else could have done it? But you see, even there, if she didn't do it, who did? Goddard anticipated that very question and in his address to the jury he said, you must not ask the question if she did not do this, who did? That is a dangerous speculation. The only question you have to answer, gentlemen of the jury, is has the prosecution proved beyond any reasonable doubt that this woman committed that murder? You see? He pinned it down like that. He went at two things. The woman's splendid character and her love for the little boy and the, the fact that you could raise doubt on any of the scientific or professional evidence that was raised. He concentrated on those. Now, I've tried to present both. There are times when I think Flora did it. I, I am my mother, right, uh, who, you know, grew up in the 1920s in a mining village, and she said that a, a thing that was very distressing about the mothers who had um, handicapped children, yeah? And by that, I mean even things that nowadays we, 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 we cope with. Um, just a child who was, who, who was mentally backward, that sort of thing that mothers worried themselves sick about what will happen to Davy when I go, yeah? Um, they, they, 
they, they, old Mrs. Buchanan, whose son David was uh, the, one of the uh, village sort of characters. You know, he was uh, he 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 was basically a Down syndrome kid. Grew up, and um, he was something of a pet among the miners in the village. He used to talk all the time as if he'd been down the pit, and he learned how to swear and spit like a miner, and this sort of thing. And the, the miners were very good to him. The miners, you know, used to give him money, uh, a little handout now and then. And that was it. But Mrs. Buchanan went through hell worrying about what would happen to Davy when she went. Um, when she did go, it worked out well. Davy's brother and sister-in-law took the boy in, and uh, that was fine, yeah? But when I ran that case past my mum, she said, yeah, it would be quite in character for, for Flora Haskell to have just suddenly gone over the top, yeah? Rather like Lindsay brought out, just suddenly in desperation, um, this little boy who appears to be dying, although he was bright, he was cheerful, he actually played football with a crutch. Bright little boy and, and um, uh, all this sort of thing, but uh, he, he, what would happen to him when Flora died? And she would have known she was not immortal. People in those days died all the time of consumption. She did die eventually of consumption, living in her brother's house up here in London as a relatively young woman of, um, what's it, 40-something, yeah? Yes. So it, that is a possibility, that it was a, a, a frantic, sudden, desperation, <coughs> mercy killing, yeah? Uh, but then the other possibility is that there was someone else in that room and that for some reason Flora didn't want to mention him, didn't, yeah? We don't know. So I, I keep an open mind, and Frog and Ruby argue with me all the time in this, and we all keep changing sides, yeah? So the short answer is, I don't know. Um, the jury, on both of our retrials, acquitted her twice. Yeah. The jury at Devizes in 1909 acquitted, but they said insufficient evidence. The prosecution had not proved its case. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Good. Any others? Yes. Hang on a second. Sam, here. What's your view on DNA evidence? The reliability. DNA evidence, well, let me, let me compare it with something else. When fingerprinting was first discovered, yeah, it was the golden bullet. You found fingerprints, that was it. You hung. You, 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 you got the other guy banged to right. As the years have gone past, it has been shown that the police, the prosecution, could plant fingerprint evidence. Yeah? Um, it, by, by simply getting the accused person to handle a piece of evidence, yeah, and then lying in their teeth and saying that this was from the scene of the crime. There was even a case in which the, the, the then um, Duke of Windsor was caught up when he was governor of the Bahamas. There was a man there, there was a murder committed there, and uh, a man was accused, innocent man, and fingerprints were uh, uh, produced on a glass by some American detectives who were flown in at His Royal Highness's expense to look into this murder. And it was proved afterwards that they could actually transfer fingerprints from the man onto the glass, right, by some method using a, a, a sticky tape, yeah? So fingerprint evidence was once the golden bullet. Now we know it can be planted. Now we know that it, it can be misrepresented, all sorts of things. I feel the same about DNA. Um, the police could plant DNA. They, they, the, the, it only, it's only good when it can be traced. I once some um, shared premises in uh, Northern Ireland, of all place, places, with a couple of royal uh, military police staff sergeants who used to run a course for soldiers posted into Northern Ireland on how to handle evidence. 
that they found at the scene of a crime. And they used an expression called the chain of evidence. Yeah? Now, they had DNA by then. They knew about DNA. Um, was in. And what they said was, for example, at the scene of a terrorist attack, you find a cigarette end. Yeah? Now, that is evidence. If that's got saliva on it from someone who's later accused of being there, um, that's crucial. But you don't just pick it up and stick it in your pocket. Yeah? Um, it gets picked up and it's put in a proper sealed official container and signed from you to the person who takes it over. And that cigarette end, every time it changes hands until it ends up in front of the court, it has a chain of existence all the way back to the scene of the crime. And that's what you've got to do with DNA. Yeah. So the short answer is, if you can prove that a piece of DNA was not contaminated, not left lying about, not 100 years old, 70 odd years old, then yes, it is very, very, very reliable evidence. Yeah. But um, I don't believe there's such a thing as infallible golden bullet evidence. I think it should always be challenged. Does that make sense? Good. So, uh, so therefore, the Henratty DNA evidence that uh, Bill and uh, Jackie contested, a fantastic meeting, mm -hmm. uh, the DNA thing really is r rubbish because the Henratty DNA was cross-contaminated. Or, again, you see, this is where the uncertainty comes in. Was it cross-contaminated or was it merely in a condition where it could have been cross-contaminated, right? That's the key point. If it was kept in storage, like the Crippen stuff, where it could have been cross-contaminated, then the defense has the right to challenge it, challenge its veracity, and that, that would be taken into consideration by the judge and the jury. But there is a clear, clear point, you see, that it was contaminated. We're now making positive statements about things like that, instead of hedging our bets a little by saying that the Hanrati DNA which was semen, I think I'm right in saying, on some of Valerie, Valerie Story's underwear, that that, in fact, um, could have been cross-contaminated by being kept close to some of Henrati's stuff. I'm quite prepared to believe that, but it's a possibility, not a certainty. Yeah? But, but it's a possibility that would certainly lead the defence to ask that that be excluded from the trial. If there's a possibility that it was contaminated, there is doubt. Yeah? Okay? You're going to hit me, because I contradict you. No, not at all, no. <laughs> Any more questions for George? In that case, you know, I know for a fact how much work George puts into these trials, his research and all the rest of it. He works really hard, and, you know, he brings to light things that other people overlook. There's no doubt about that. Anybody that's been to his trials or his you know, mock trials will realise the amount of work that he puts in. I think, George, we could actually do a whole talk here on DNA, perhaps one day. Perhaps we'll find out more about it. Yeah. But, ladies and gentlemen, can we please thank George for coming tonight and providing such an educational lecture? Thank you very much. And that was George Fleming at the October 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I'd like to thank George Fleming, Steve Ratty, Ruby Vitrino, Frog Moody, and all of the members of the Committee of the Whitechapel Society 
for making the release of this very interesting presentation possible. As I said in my introduction, if you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, to become a member, purchase books, subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, or look at upcoming speakers and events, please visit whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. I would like to thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time.